Good morning. For those of you that are here and you might be a guest this morning, it's, it's just great to have you with us. Uh, my name is Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And we are grateful for every guest that walks through that door because this church is about seeing a growing number of people both enjoy and experience Jesus Christ, uh, something that is particularly hopeful after last night. And so we are here together this morning in a, uh, in a place of hope, and we're sharing that together. And I'm just so glad you're here. Thanks for coming this morning. Um, today we continue our series out of the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. The series is titled, Weak is Strong. And it's really impossible for me to convey how excited I am about this series from 2 Corinthians, because this book has been, it's been such a treasure to me over the last five years. It has been like a, like a close companion that I, have, that I have fled to for inspiration and for hope and perspective. And one of the things that we're discovering together is that this is one of the most surprising and counterintuitive books in the entire New Testament. Because as we're wading into it, we're, we're beginning to discover that God's intention is to kind of reorder our thinking on a number of different things when it comes to life. Reorder our thinking on weakness and strength and shame and, and, and glory and suffering and blessing, limitation and power. All these themes are coming at us, and we're beginning to think differently about those things. We're beginning to think more biblically about those things. So this morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with a message that is entitled, Better Than Moses. So you can open up your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 3, and we're going to plug in at verse 7 and read through verse 11. Better Than Moses. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Let's pray. Lord, this is a holy moment in this meeting, because your word is opened. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it renews our mind. It transforms our hearts. It is eternal and relevant 
and personal and durable. And we need it. We need it today. We need it right now. And so we ask that you would move through your word and help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's universally understood by Bible scholars that this particular section of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, amounts to a kind of commentary. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, a commentary is just another book that explains or unpacks Scripture. So 2 Corinthians, this section, amounts to a commentary on a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 32, 33, and 34. So let me remind us, let's just hold that off to a side for a second, and let's go back to Exodus 32, and let me remind you of what was going on back at that time, because this is the account of Moses being given the law. So Moses has this appointment with God up on Mount Sinai, and there he meets God and and God gives him the law. Moses receives the law. And Moses is having such a great time with God that he kind of delays. He stays up there. And while he's delaying, the people that are camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they begin to morally degenerate. Moses returns, comes back down, and he, he comes right in the middle of like a full pitch party. The, the kegs are are flowing. Dave Matthews is booming through the speakers. Or if you're here at over 50, Louie Louie is booming through the speakers. And Moses becomes angry. Moses throws the tablets upon which was written the Ten Commandments, and the tablets break. And so later, Moses has to return up to Mount Sinai and, and exercise the replacement policy on the tablets. He gets a new set of tablets, and while he's up there, he has this unusual request of God, this this extraordinary, this audacious request of God. He says of God, may I see your glory. And God says, Moses, we can't do that. If I did that, you'd be toast. But what I will do is I will show you a ray, a sliver, a slice, not of my glory, but kind of of the afterglow. And so God tucks him into the cleft of a rock, and God passes by. And God's luminous, glorious glory burns so brightly that it stamps itself upon Moses' face, And Moses returns then to the people. The people see him. They don't understand what's going on. They see the glory of God. They recognize the holiness of God, and they begin to fear Moses. And so the people, or Moses, on behalf of the people, puts a veil over his face. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is seizing upon that one small detail in Israel, in Jewish history. He's that one thing. Paul says, let's park right there. Let's go back to that whole thing. But I just want to talk to you about one little part of it, one little sliver of it. Let's talk about the veil. I want to talk about the face of Moses. Now, why does he go there? Well, let's remember what's happening in the Corinthian church with Paul. 
Paul is under attack by opponents who are disputing both the quality and the legitimacy of his ministry. And so in verse 7 that we read, we just read, he's continuing to offer to the Corinthians evidence of the sufficiency of his ministry, a theme that began all the way back in, well, just two verses prior. We didn't read this. Let me read it to you now. He says, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. So Paul is advocating, he's defending his competence because these intruders from the outside have crashed the Corinthian church and they're stirring up the people. And the way they're stirring up the people is with a particular message because they, they, they kind of roll with a, a back to Moses motif. They've got this back-to-Moses vibe about them. In other words, they come saying, our ministry is associated with the ministry of Moses. We're about Moses. We stand for the law of Moses. And so they're going around to the Corinthians' homes, and they're having these these come-to-Moses meetings, and they traffic in Moses, and they talk about Moses, and they sell Moses T-shirts and have Moses bobbleheads, and, you know, it's it's just all about Moses. And this messaging from these intruders, from these opponents, has become very attractive to the Corinthians because although they're not necessarily from Jewish, a Jewish background, Moses is still this towering figure among the Corinthian people as well. And so this is the stage that is set. You have these lovers of Moses that are, that are preaching this message, but also in doing so, they're seeking to assassinate Paul's character. And they're doing so by claiming that Paul is, Paul is unimpressive. Look at the way he talks. Look at, look at the manner of man he is. Look at his appearance. He has no letters of commendation. His presence is somewhat unremarkable if you really look at him. He is utterly, totally insufficient to serve and lead you people, the Corinthians. That's their message. So Paul is responding in 2 Corinthians. And this is the point where Paul begins to say, oh, oh, you really think so? You really think that I'm insufficient? He said, okay, he's saying, okay, okay, let's do this. Let's talk about your boy Moses. Let's just talk about Moses. Let's go to the epicenter of your whole belief system, and let's just center our attention and our thinking right there. And so Paul begins to explain as part of his defense why his ministry is not just like Moses' ministry, but it is, get this, superior to Moses' ministry. And he says, let me prove my point by, by putting what you believe and what they believe, he's talking to the Corinthians, what they believe, the opponents, and what I believe, let me put them side to side and let's apply to each a test. Let's apply to each the glory test. A glory, if, if, if you were hearing as I read the passage, glory is a term that is used 10 different times in this passage. It's used as a noun. It's used as a verb. Glory means the, the intrinsic value of something. 
It's the splendor and the radiance that reflects the worth of something. We may say, we may say the better the diamond, the more it sparkles. The better the diamond, the more glorious it is, the more bright it is, the more that it sparkles. And so Paul is saying, if you really want to examine the superiority of one over the other, put it to, the, to a test of proof. Put it, to, put it to something that's really going to test the quality, the substance, the durability of what it really, really represents. He says, put it to the test of glory. Measure the splendor of its value. And so this is, this is kind of Paul's overarching argument. I'm going to spell it out for you, and then you'll see how he seeks to offer evidence to support the argument that he's making. This is his argument. He, he's saying as follows. He's saying, the glory of the new covenant through Jesus is greater than the glory of the old covenant through Moses. So that's, that's his first point. The glory of the new covenant through Jesus is greater than the glory of the old covenant through Moses. Secondly, he's saying, I play a unique apostolic role in spreading that news. Therefore, point three, my ministry is superior to Moses. That's where, that's where he's going with this whole thing. The glory of the new covenant, bigger than the glory of the old covenant. I'm an apostle that's been given a unique message. It's unrepeatable at this junction of redemptive history. Therefore, therefore, my ministry is superior to Moses. So to support this idea, this argument that he's making to the Corinthians against the opponents, he offers three specific pieces of evidence. And I want to give them to you as Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and Exhibit C. These are three evidences of superior glory. Exhibit A is spirit over stone. Spirit over stone. Look again at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end... Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So Paul returns us to Exodus chapter 32 in the account of God giving the law. And Paul basically said, because the law was personally carved in stone by God. And that's a, that's a funny thing to just think about for a second. Wrap your brain around that one. Because the law was chiseled by God on stone, because the law was crafted or sculpted by God, because he fashioned it, it came in glory. Because God made it, because he wrote it, because he chiseled it, it came to Moses in glory. In fact, it came with so much glory that it rubbed off on his face. It stayed with Moses. And so Paul is saying, if the stone touched by God and the law written by God had that kind of wattage as it came to earth, then how much more glory must be manifest when God himself comes to earth and cuts a new covenant by the coming of the Son, the life and death of the Son, and then the coming of the Spirit upon his ascension. 
And he's trying to make an argument moving from the lesser to the greater by just helping the Corinthians to see how, remember Corinthians, you know the Old Testament, as glorious as this was, how much more glorious should Jesus' coming be in contrast? I mean, just imagine that one day you've been informed that you've won a a spanking new 2016 luxury car. And the way you're going to receive it is first they're going to send you the operating manual, and then about two weeks later they're going to send you the actual car. And so about a week later you go out to your mailbox and you discover in your mailbox this gold-embossed, ornate, calligraphied owner's manual, and as you take it out, it's unlike anything that you have ever handled whatsoever, the the material, the way it's used, the the beauty. You just think, this is amazing. This is so expensive. I never imagined I'd I'd hold anything this, this valuable. So the instinct immediately when you have something like that in your hands is to think that if the operating manual itself was written in this way and packaged in this way, oh my, the actual car must be amazing. See, that's Paul's point. That's where Paul's going. He's saying if the stone came to the people with glory, if the Ten Commandments came to the people with glory, just imagine how glorious it must be that God himself became man and sacrificed himself for our sins, that that the Spirit of God came upon us and inaugurated an entirely new kingdom, and that the Spirit lives within us. That which is external passes. That which is internal lives forever. And so Paul was looking at the Corinthians. He's looking at the opponents, and he's saying, and that's the message that I serve. That's the news I carry. That's a glory that is superior to Moses. I mean, we have to, we have to get how, how seemingly audacious it is that Paul would even be bringing his name up alongside of Moses or in the same sentence. I mean, this is Moses. Moses was given the law. Moses wrote Scripture. He spoke with God. He Divided the Red Sea. He was known to be the most humble man who ever lived. And here's Paul's claim about that. Yeah, I understand that, but my ministry is more important than his. My ministry is bigger than his. My ministry is better than his. I mean, you know, you begin to understand Paul's argument, and you're just you're tempted to think, of of course it is Paul, and you live in Wonderland, and you ride angels to work each day, don't you? But but here's what what's Paul's saying? He's saying, no, you don't get it, because I'm the only one that's really sane here. Because I understand that the glory of the Spirit is greater than the glory of the stone. And so he puts that forward as the first exhibit, exhibit A, to support the argument that he's making. And then he moves on to exhibit B. Exhibit B is righteousness over condemnation. Righteousness over condemnation. So verse 9, let's look at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
So now Paul shifts his portrayal of the law to a ministry of condemnation, and he sets that in contrast to a ministry of righteousness. So that begs two different questions. What is the ministry of condemnation, and what is the ministry of righteousness? So let's talk first about the the ministry of condemnation and and why this ministry was, was so important. See, most of the Jewish people at this time had wrong ideas about the purpose of the law. They wrongly believed that the law was the way to salvation and all they needed to do was keep it. So the law came to them from God to point the way of salvation, and their goal as followers of God was to keep the law so that they could attain salvation. They didn't understand that the purpose of the law was not to exalt man's ability to actually attain the law. It was to expose man's inability to keep the law. And so they were always trying to attain the law so that they could be right in right standing with God. They didn't understand the purpose of the law. Which, by the way, doesn't imply that there was anything wrong with the law. Paul tells the Romans that the law was good and holy and righteous. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. The problem is that the law could not produce what the law commanded. Let me say that again. The law could not produce what the law commanded. The law could inform, and in informing, the law could measure and and represent a standard. And then when we fell short of that standard, which every human being inevitably does, the law could condemn us. And in so doing, it had a ministry to humanity. The ministry was to condemn us. The ministry was to Remind us each and every day that we just don't hit the standard, that we fall short of the standard. It could not produce righteousness within us. It could only command us to be righteous, to inform us we should be righteous, and then condemn us when we're not righteous. So it would tell us not to covet, and then it would condemn us for coveting. It would tell us not to lie, and then it would condemn condemn us for lying. Because the law was limited. It could not convert us. It could only condemn us. You know, there's a, there's a school zone in, in Tallahassee that I, I used to drive through every single day. And in this school zone that I would drive through, from 7 to 9 a.m., the the speed limit was 20 miles per hour. It was posted 20 miles per hour. That was the law, 20 miles per hour. The school zone was safeguarded by the suspicious eye of a crossing guard. I would say a very unhappy crossing guard. I thought of her as the grumpy crossing guard. And I used to, I used to go through that area and... And, and there are times I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was going the right, right speed. But I looked down, I'd just be going maybe 21, 22. And I'd look up at her, and she would be frowning at me and glaring at me with this disapproval and shaking her head like, you just do not 
measure up. And I'm, I'm thinking, what? What? I'm doing what I think I should be doing. I'm doing, I'm doing like 21. Is that really so bad? Is that really so terrible? I mean, I haven't even had caffeine yet. And she would just frown and scowl and shake her head from side to side as if to say, someday you're going to burn for this. <laughs> someday. See, the law informs posts the speed limit. The law informs, but the law has no power to help you keep it. All the law can do is frown upon you and condemn you when you fail to fulfill the law, which is why Paul says in verse 6, the letter kills. The letter kills. Because we're absolutely unable, absolutely, utterly unable to satisfy the demands of the law. And we therefore stand condemned. It's a ministry that the law provides. We stand condemned. We know who we really are before God. We stand apart from some kind of covering, apart from some kind of atonement, apart from some kind of savior. We stand But Paul says, there's good news. Jesus. There's this other ministry. There's this ministry of righteousness that Jesus brought, that the new covenant brings. So what is this ministry of righteousness? Well, the ministry of righteousness is is the gospel. The gospel. Now, when I say gospel, I mean, think about it in terms of five fingers. The birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Five points, five fingers, the fist of the gospel. Open it up, birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension. You've got this, you've got this digit in the middle, which is longest, which reminds us that the, the, the death of Jesus is at the center of the gospel. It's the heart and core of the gospel. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus. And so, so the Savior came and was born as a child, as a man, the God-man. And that's what we celebrated Christmas. But then he had this life, this life where it wasn't simply a substitutionary death, but he lived a life that we couldn't live, fulfilling the law that we could never fulfill. And then the third finger, he died the death on our behalf. He died a substitutionary death. In other words, he died the death that we deserved. He He didn't break the law, we did. He suffered the death that we deserve. But in that life, you know what he did? In that life, he fully satisfied the demands of the law by obeying every facet, every feature of the law of Moses. And you know what then happened? Is that all that righteousness from all that obedience, 33 years of obeying God, that all got put in a bank account. That got put up in, off to the side in a bank account. And then in death, he offered himself to be cursed and crucified as if he had broken every law. He who had never broken any law, who actually obeyed the, the full law of Moses at all, at all times, in all things, he died the death we should have died. But you know what that did? Is it is it downloaded that bank account of his righteousness over the past 33 years upon us. See, 
That's what's at, at the heart of the gospel. It is that Jesus was able to transfer that bank of righteousness and place it over us, not inside of us, over us, so that when God looked down, he would see us no longer in the sins that we've committed, no longer in the failures and the flaws and in the vulnerabilities and in the lies and in the lusts and the things that characterize my life and your life. He no longer sees us in those things, but he sees the ministry of righteousness. He sees that Jesus substituted himself on our behalf and gave us his righteousness. He sees that righteousness dripping off of us, and that elicits his approval. That elicits his fatherly love. That elicits his attaboy, his well-done, good and faithful servant, his, you are my child, I delight in you. We sang it earlier, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Because of this gospel, because of this ministry of righteousness, we are dressed in his righteousness alone, and therefore we stand faultless before the throne. And you know, my heart for each one of us here this morning is that we would think deeply and personally about this ministry of righteousness, about this this transfer, the fact that Christ's life of perfect obedience became the account that was set up and transferred to me. So that Every time Jesus denied a temptation, every time he turned his cheek, every time an angry thought was turned aside within the Savior, the wealth of that righteous response at the cross, whoosh, transferred to me. So that when God looks down, this is what he sees because of the new covenant. This is what he sees because of the Savior This is what he sees, that wealth, that ministry of righteousness. 33 years of perfect works dripping off of you. It's a ministry of righteousness. And this perhaps helps us to see why the legalism of Paul's opponents, of these intruders within the Corinthian church, why their legalism is so wrong-headed because they basically say through their legalism that the ministry of righteousness is insufficient, that God's scheme of salvation isn't good enough, that I need to add my own obedience to what God has accomplished for me, that I need to add my own improvements, my own record of righteousness to Christ's record of righteousness. And they're not alone in that, by the way. Because there's something about all of us that we're just, we're just wired to try to smuggle in our own obedience and rewrite the gospel with us in the story, with something that we've done in the story, with some contribution we make. And I know that. Because I do it. 
You know, one thing I've noticed is I've noticed that I feel very good about myself and good about my relationship with God when I'm productive. You know what I mean? When, I'm, when the decisions that I'm making each and every day have some sense that they're moving forward some agenda that I have for my own life. And there's a noticeable progress that I can point to. There's something I can point to, something I'm doing that's producing some kind of fruit that I can point to. There's some advances that are being made that I can testify to. (laughs) So, um, last week, I'm walking into my house, and uh, my my foot starts to itch, and I look down, it looks like I have a mosquito bite on my toe. And I thought, oh, I have a mosquito bite on my toe. People get mosquito bites, it's not a big deal. So I go to bed that night, wake up in the middle of the night, go to put my foot on the floor, and my foot is entirely numb. And I think, oh, my foot is numb. But, you know, I'm sleeping, and I probably slept on my foot, cut off the blood flow, and so it's numb. So I went back to sleep. I woke up the next morning, and my foot was as big as my head. Gargantuan. My foot was completely and utterly paralyzed. My foot had all over it these splotches, these, these, blood, these blood blisters all over it. And so I'm looking down and I'm thinking, not good. <laughs> and so I get to work. And uh, I, I, I wait a couple hours and it gets worse. And I wait a couple more hours and it gets worse. And Kim's saying, you know, I really think most logical, most rational people, reasonable people, sane people get this kind of stuff looked at. And so I go and I get it looked at, and it turns out it's, a, it's an allergic reaction to whatever bit me. And so they give me two shots, and I'm walking out, and I say to the nurse, so is there any way I could know what bit me? And she puts her hand on my shoulder, and she says, honey, you're in Florida now. <laughs> oh, I know I'm in Florida. Here's what I want to tell you about that story. The second I woke up in the morning, the second I saw that this thing was on my foot. My first thought was this. Oh, this better not slow me down. This is going to slow me down. This is going to inhibit what for this day might make me feel good about myself. Because it's going to remove the sense of progress from which I derive a sense of peace. It's going to remove a kind of productivity from which I can oftentimes sinfully derive identity so that I can feel worthless or condemned or, and this is what's most dangerous, unable to contribute to my right standing before God. And listen, this is what I want you to hear. This is not, well, I understand. See, Dave, he's, Dave's kind of a type A. This has nothing to do with being a type A. This is because I drift from the ministry of righteousness. This is, you know, and and believe me when I say I read books about the ministry of righteousness. This morning I was standing right down there singing about the ministry of righteousness. I believe in the ministry of righteousness. There's just something inside of me that always wants to add to it. That always wants to add my own righteousness to Christ's righteousness so that my sense of well-being comes not from what Christ has accomplished, but what I accomplish. Not from what Christ has done, but what I do. I just 
want to smuggle in a little bit of my own obedience. And here's the thing you need to hear. I'm not alone. (laughs) I'm not alone. You're there with me. And so Paul's point is the new covenant brings a ministry of righteousness. That ministry of righteousness is superior to the ministry of condemnation. That ministry of righteousness brings a new identity, one that's not based on your activity, not based upon your righteousness, because when it goes there, it leads to that whole ministry of condemnation. But it looks to the righteousness of another. It looks up. One who not only imputes righteousness to us, but actually, because he comes and lives inside of us through the Spirit, incites desires that we might live for him. And so Paul's saying to the Corinthians, and therefore, that's my message. That's my message, and it's vastly superior to the message of Moses. And by the way, it's vastly superior to those peddlers who are enticing you over in Corinth. And so he gives them exhibit B, righteousness over condemnation. And lastly, exhibit C, the permanent over the temporary. The permanent over temporary. Look at verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Okay, so again, the context here is is the giving of the law, Exodus 32 through 34, so that it stamped glory upon the face of Moses. And this is where Paul does something that is utterly fascinating. Paul links the glory of Moses' face to the law. And he reveals that the fading of the glory upon Moses' face was actually set in Scripture. It was installed in Scripture as a picture, as a parable of the fading glory of the law. In other words, that the glory of the law was provisional. It was impermanent. It was temporary. And Paul makes an application in verse 11. He says, if what was temporary came with that kind of glory, just imagine the glory of the permanent thing. And the problem he's dealing with among the Corinthians is that some can't imagine it. And so in the next verse, Paul describes how the veil was placed over Moses' face. I mean, we didn't read this this morning, but but Paul says, of of course, the the glory of Moses' face was was so bright that it had to be veiled. You know, same reason we don't look directly at the sun, because it'll, you know, the, the brightness of the sun will affect us. So in verse 12, it says, Moses put a veil over his face. We didn't read this this morning, but it's worth going into for just a second. Moses put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze, listen to this, at the outcome of the end of this thing. In other words, they were gazing at something that was going to end. And and the Israelites didn't want to gaze at that. Do you see what's being said here? The veil over Moses' face represents the resistance of the Jews 
to see the law fade, to see Moses fade, to see the permanent over the temporary. See, Paul's not simply saying that my ministry is superior because Jesus is superior. He's saying, he's saying, Corinthians, the opponents are blind. They're blind. Some of the Israelites are blind. They don't see the true value. They don't see the incomprehensible, the inconceivable worth of what they're really looking at. They're, 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 not, they're like the fading, they're, they embrace the fading glory of the law, the fading glory of Moses, rather than that which is of extreme value. I read a story recently about, from a news journal that talked about his brother and sister in London. Their parents, I guess, had died, and they were cleaning their parents' home, and they found this very old vase. And so they turned the vase over to an auction house, and they discovered that the vase was worth two million pounds. And so the auction house took it to the auction, and they auctioned it for 69 million pounds. So the brother and the sister are up in the attic. They think, oh, this, this is just a quaint relic. Isn't this cool? Only to discover that it was something that had an incomprehensible worth. Now listen to this. Paul's opponents, though they're religious, had no concept of heavenly value. They had no, they had no, no value for Jesus, no value of Paul, no value of Paul's gifts. They're like the couple cleaning the attic. They've got this thing of incomprehensible worth in their hands, and they just don't recognize it. They just don't understand the value. And let's face it, sometimes we're just like Paul's accusers, aren't we? We appear to stand with God while we value the wrong things in life. We say we value the permanent over the temporary. We talk about that in small group all the time. We appear like we're, you know, we're value-driven kind of people, but sometimes our decisions... Sometimes even our pain can betray us. Let me explain to you what I'm... Actually, let me pose this to you in a question. Are you aware that sometimes what deeply disappoints us can reveal what we truly value? What profoundly hurts us can reveal what we truly considered, consider worthy. Think about it this way. You know, there's someone that you, that you love dearly, deeply. But they're not treating you in the way you deserve. At least that's what you think. You, someone you love, someone you're invested in emotionally, but they're not treating you the way you think they should. Now, actually, hold that one up there, and let me give you, let me give you two more. You're, you're here and you're a single woman, you're a single man, and you're dating somebody and you've been doing it for a while, but all of a sudden, for some crazy reason, the whole thing breaks off. The relationship ends unexpectedly. Let's move to a third one. You, you, you're in your company or you're, you're involved in serving a group within the community or maybe you're serving the church here and you have one role, but for some reason your role changes and you no longer have the responsibility that you once had. 
And so you have these three pictures. These three, these are all like slices of life, aren't they? These things happen, and they happen all the time. And certainly when these kind of things happen, you would expect a certain kind of response, a certain sadness, a certain impact. But let's go back back to the first one where somebody that you love is not treating you as you expect or as you feel you deserve. You are devastated over that experience. You are inconsolable over the sense of injustice that's going on in that or the person that you're dating. You are crushed over the, what you think is the withdrawal of their affection and their sense of endorsement of the relationship, the sense of endorsement over your life. Or let's go to the role change. You are destroyed and devastated and disoriented over what you perceive to be the change of your role, which for some strange reason goes to the change of your value. And see, one thing we don't always recognize is that disproportionate feelings can reveal a seismic shift in the spiritual stock market that we trade in. In other words, God's stock has dropped And man's stock has gone off the charts. And we've quietly slid right into idolatry, where we make man big and God small. And so our happiness depends upon our idol being fed. And the most dangerous thing about idolatry is not that it appears as a golden calf before us, but it's those good things that become great things, that become superior things, that become things that replace God in our life. And one of the most surprising things about being a Christian is that it's not hard to be camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, like the Israelites, only yards away from the presence of God, And be worshiping and valuing the wrong thing. Be worshiping and valuing a golden calf rather than the God of the mountain. And the depth of pain and the depth of loss that we can feel is sometimes not because we've been victimized by other people, but because, just like the opponents of Paul, we've valued the wrong thing. We valued something fading more than something enduring. We valued something temporary rather than something permanent. And so Paul's strategy for the Corinthians and the opponents, and Paul's strategy for us as well, is the same. To value Jesus and what Jesus has done over all else to value the spirit over the stone, to value righteousness over condemnation, to value permanence over that which is temporary. Because it's the only thing that really matters in life. It's the only thing that endures. It's the only thing that will ultimately feed your soul. It's the only thing that will last. Let's pray.